Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in your presence as we turn our attention to your word today, we long for you to be our focus. And not only our focus, God, but we long for you to be our path through life. When you're our focus and you're our path, God, we long for you to be our joy. And so, God, would you speak to us today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What difference does our obedience make? Practically speaking, by our obedience or our disobedience, can can we change God's mind or force God to do something? The ancient Greeks actually thought that you could force the gods to do things or change the gods' minds. The Greeks told a story about a titan named Prometheus. And after humanity was created, Prometheus looked at human beings, weak naked and vulnerable. And he thought, for them to survive and thrive, they're going to need something. They're going to need the gift of fire. Now, the gods didn't want human beings to have fire. But Prometheus snuck into the workplace of one of the gods and stole fire and brought it to humanity to provide for human beings so that human beings could be protected and safe and provided for. Well, the gods were mad. Zeus was furious. And so the story goes that Zeus punished Prometheus, the titan, by having him chained to a rock. And every day, an eagle would come and peck at Prometheus and and tear him apart. Then at night, being immortal, Prometheus would heal. And the next morning, the whole thing would begin again, eternal punishment for defying the gods. But did you see, the Greeks actually thought that titans and heroes And human beings could sometimes outthink, outmaneuver, and change the minds of the gods. Well, what about us? Do we think that we can change God's mind or force God to do things or stop God from doing things? It's very interesting because as we look at the minor prophets, the minor prophets speak extensively about the impact of our obedience and of our disobedience. Think about the things that we know that the minor prophets have said. The minor prophets say that sin leads to judgment. In fact, the minor prophets confront the people for their sin, their sins of idolatry and injustice and pushing God out of the way. And they're very practical about it. They say, because of your sin, 
things don't change, you're going to experience famines. You're going to experience plagues and invasions and destruction and exile because sin leads to judgment. But then the minor prophets always remind us that judgment should lead to repentance. Because you see, the minor prophets are saying, before it's too late, repent and turn from your wicked ways. And even when it is too late, when judgment is already on the way, is happening or has happened, the minor prophets will say, turn to God and away from your sin. Because the minor prophets also say that repentance is going to lead to restoration. If the people who have sinned and been judged will repent, they can be restored. They can be brought back from exile. They can have their nation rebuilt. They can actually call all of the peoples of the world to faith in God. They stand as a beacon because repentance leads to restoration. Now, Zechariah the prophet is the minor prophet that we're studying today, and Zechariah told the people that their obedience and their disobedience mattered. Because you're going to see in the prophet Zechariah that he said, if you continue to disobey God, you can continue to experience consequences and judgment. But Zechariah held out a hope. If you will repent and turn to God, God has a bright future planned for you. Your obedience and your disobedience matter. And we have some of those same questions here and now. Now, we, of course, don't think that we can change God's mind or force God to do something or stop God from doing something, but The same message applies to us today. Our obedience and our disobedience matter. And Zechariah the prophet helps us to think about how. So let's dig into Zechariah the prophet today. And we're going to find that Zechariah told the people of Judah that obedience could change everything. You see, Zechariah the prophet was a contemporary of Haggai. We studied the prophet Haggai last week. Haggai and Zechariah worked in the later part of the 6th century BC. They worked on the backdrop of there having been, decades before, an invasion of Judah by the Babylonian Empire. They destroyed everything and carried many of the people away into exile, where they were for decades Then the Persian Empire replaced the Babylonians, and the Persian Empire told the people of Judah that they could return, and the people of Judah did return, and they began rebuilding their homes, they began rebuilding their land, but they did not rebuild their temple. And both Haggai and Zechariah confronted the people about their need to rebuild the temple. Now, Zechariah told the people to rebuild because if they did, he said, there is in front of you a hope that is beautiful, a kingdom that is coming from God, a messianic kingdom. And Zechariah described that hope. He, He described it in vivid terms. He said, the Lord God himself will be your king. There will be a new Jerusalem at the center of the nation, 
And that new Jerusalem at the center of the nation will be a place from which streams of living water flow. And he said, in that new Jerusalem, in the future that God is planning, there's not even going to be a need for a sun or a moon because God himself will be the light at the center of new Jerusalem. There's a coming kingdom. It's going to be amazing. And naturally, the people responded with a question. And that question is, when? When is this kingdom coming? When is this Messiah you're promising us coming? When is the kingdom of God going to come on earth? And Zechariah made it clear that their obedience or their disobedience could change everything. Because Zechariah said, particularly in chapter 1, you've been disobeying God. And if you keep disobeying God the way you have been, you could experience judgment and exile all over again. But he said, God has promises in the future. What you should do is diligently obey God and see what blessings God will rain down on you in the future. And then we come to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, our text for today. And in that passage, Zechariah tells the people about a critical piece of that future that God has planned for them. Let's read together now, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. There shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so we get this critical piece of the future, but what is Zechariah really saying here? Well, God is telling Zechariah the prophet to proclaim a coming priest and king. God is telling Zechariah to proclaim a coming priest and king, but how do we get there? How do we see that in this passage? Well, it all begins with that crown. You see, people were returning once again from exile in Babylon, a new group, had just arrived, and some of the people who had just arrived had been wealthy and successful back in the place of their exile. And in returning to Judah, 
They'd brought their wealth with them, planning to use some of their wealth to help rebuild Judah. And God told Zechariah the prophet, go to these men. They have for you gold and silver. Take this precious metal from them and have it made into a crown, which Zechariah did. And then God said, take that crown that's been formed and go to the high priest Joshua and place that crown on his head. It's a truly unusual step because the priest doesn't wear a crown. The priest wears a turban. The crown goes on king. It's a sign of royal authority. But God tells Zechariah, take this crown and put it on the head of the priest. And then God says, tell Joshua the high priest to look for the branch. Now, you may not know what the branch refers to, but there was a hope in Israel based on a promise that God had made to King David. God had promised King David that a descendant of his would always rule over the house of Israel and of Judah. And when the Babylonians invaded and destroyed Judah, they dethroned the king. There was no longer an obvious son of David on the throne in Jerusalem, which led people to ask, what about the promises that God had made to David? Where is the house of David now? In fact, if you picture the house of David as being like a tree, After the Babylonians came and destroyed Judah, it was as if that tree had been cut off and was now just a stump. But the prophet said, look at that stump that is the house of David. Because one day, a branch is going to come up from a seemingly dead stump. And that branch is going to grow And from that branch will come Messiah. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet writes about it. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so God is saying through Zechariah the prophet to Joshua the priest, look for the branch. The branch is coming. This one from the the line of David is coming. He will be king and he will restore the fortunes of Judah. He will bring God's righteousness into the world. That crown didn't stay on Joshua's head. Zechariah the prophet did not anoint Joshua king in this moment. No, they took the crown off of Joshua's head and they placed it in the temple as a sign and a promise that someone is coming who is a king. 
But what Zechariah is wanting us to see here is that the one who is to come, Messiah, is going to be both priest and king. You see, in the past, priests and kings were separate. There would be a high priest and there would be a king. They worked separately, sometimes in coordination, but they each had different jobs. And when God placed this crown, when Zechariah placed this crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest, he was saying there is one coming in the future, Messiah, who will not be priest or king, but will be priest and king in one. And when you see Messiah who is priest and king in one, everything is going to change. If, if, if Messiah will come, he will be priest and king, he will inaugurate a new age, everything will change if, go back to 6.15 where Zechariah said, and this shall come to pass if, you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Zechariah was calling the people of his day to diligently obey God, and they listened to what Zechariah said. Now, as we move forward in the Bible, we discover that Jesus is that perfect priest and king. Jesus is that perfect priest and king that Zechariah was prophesying and causing us to look for. Well, we know that Jesus is the perfect priest. The Old Testament tells us what a priest is to look like, how a priest is to dress, and what a priest is to do. In the book of Exodus, we read among the priestly duties, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. Every day, morning and night, you shall offer a lamb as a sacrifice to God on behalf of the sin of the people. Now, if we flip forward to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter, we find out that Jesus is that lamb, that sacrifice for our sin. Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, when he died on the cross, is that perfect sacrifice offered for our sin. But in addition to being the lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is also the priest offering that sacrifice. In the book of Hebrews, we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's the priests of the old covenant. But, so there's a change. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is a priest who's offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. Jesus is that perfect priest. Zechariah was prophesying. And Jesus is that perfect king as well. 
immediately upon Jesus beginning his ministry, people began to recognize that the king is in our midst. In John chapter 1, verse 49, as one of the disciples met Jesus for the first time, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He is the expected king. Paul, in the book of Philippians, tells us that Jesus, having obeyed his father perfectly and having offered the perfect sacrifice, is then enthroned and exalted. Verses 9 through 11 go, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that is on Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord or King to the glory of God the Father. But what you need to understand is that it's Jesus' nature to be King. And we see this in the Revelation where Jesus, as King, is defeating sin and death and evil and everything that belongs to it. But in the Revelation, we find that kingliness is Jesus' true nature. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, we read this, this passage, on his robe and on his thigh. This is that Jesus' real identity is being revealed to us here. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's who Jesus is. We discover that Jesus is priest and king. What does that mean? It, it means simply that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Zechariah tells us to look for one who is priest and king, and Jesus is perfect priest and king. He is Savior and Lord. And now we're okay with the concept of Jesus being priest and savior. We like that because it means that we are delivered from our sin. We're forgiven. The chains of our sin are broken, and we are given new life and eternal life. So we like the idea of Jesus being priest and savior. But what the Bible tells us is that Jesus is also king and Lord. And when it comes to that concept, we're, we're a little bit more uncomfortable because to be blunt, we were looking for a, a priest and savior, but we weren't looking for a king and a lord. Because a king and a lord is someone who is in charge, who is in charge of our lives. And we already had someone in charge of our lives. We were already in charge of our lives, and we liked it that way, and we still like it that way. And so we're not looking for a king and a lord to come in and be then in charge of our lives. But the Bible tells us that when we find Messiah, we find a priest and a king, a savior, and a Lord. And if we are to take Jesus as priest and Savior, he is King and Lord as well. We can't get one without getting the other. 
And so Zechariah is telling us to diligently obey this one who is priest and king. Zechariah told the people of his day that what God wants from them is for them to diligently obey him. And the New Testament tells us that to be followers of Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus, to belong to Jesus is to follow him and to obey him. But it still begs the question, what difference does our obedience or our disobedience make? When I was a teenager and my step-grandmother died, raised the question of what difference does obedience or disobedience make for me. My biological grandmother died when I was a toddler, and my grandfather remarried when I was a young child, and I grew up calling my step-grandmother Granny. She was a fantastic grandmother to me. When I was a teenager, Granny was diagnosed with cancer, and they told us from the beginning that the picture wasn't good, but I knew what that meant as a teenager of faith. It meant that I had to pray for her and pray that God would heal her. And I knew that God, if I prayed hard enough, would heal her. And so I set about praying diligently for Granny. And over weeks and months, Granny was declining, which just told me that I had to pray harder. I hadn't prayed hard enough yet for Granny. And then one day we got a phone call that Granny, who had been declining for a long time, was doing better. She was sitting up. She was eating. She was bright. And I took it as a confirmation. I I was so excited. I did a victory lap around the house. I told you she was going to be healed. And then later that night, we got the call that Granny had died. And I knew it was my fault. I knew I hadn't prayed hard enough for her. And I knew that I hadn't obeyed God. And I knew that he killed her as a result. That's what I told myself. And and we know that by our obedience and our disobedience, we don't change God's mind or force him to do something or stop him from doing something. We know that. But at the same time, we think that if we obey God rightly, he's going to protect us and bless us. And we think that if we disobey God, he's going to zap us. And we know that none of that is true. But we live as if it is true. But if it's not true, what difference does our obedience really make? Jesus is priest and Lord, then what difference does our obedience make? And the first thing that we need to deal with is our obedience doesn't force God to do anything. I want to set you at liberty today. I want to break some chains in your life today, if that's okay 
with you. Because this passage is important for us to understand. Our obedience doesn't force God to do anything. Can you wrap your head around that for just a minute? Because you may know it with your head, but it's probably true that you also don't know it with your life and with your heart and with your hands, right? Because people read Zechariah chapter 6 and the prophet Zechariah and came to the conclusion that if they would diligently obey God, then God would be forced to send Messiah and forced to create the kingdom of Judah and restore the people and make Judah a worldwide empire. People came to that conclusion. The Pharisees very specifically came to that conclusion. And consequently, they set about diligently studying and seeking to assiduously apply God's law, at least in the externals. Because they came to the conclusion that if they were good enough, they could push God to send Messiah into the world. And then when they met Jesus, they thought if they were good enough, they could put that genie back in the bottle because he was not what they expected. But we can't force God to do anything. God is good, and God is powerful, and God is sovereign, and we don't force God to do anything. Secondly, our obedience doesn't earn our salvation, to which you say, yeah, I know that. I can't earn my salvation, except that a lot of us think fundamentally that the way that we get salvation is God is holding a scales, and On the one side, he puts the good stuff, and on the other side, he puts the bad stuff in our lives. And if the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, then we get salvation. We don't think that with our heads. We live that with our hearts and with our our lives. And that's not true. And and we think, consequently, on the other hand, sometimes if our good stuff is enough in life, if we have done enough good stuff in life that God will save us, And sometimes we think that if we've done too much bad stuff, God can't save us. And we know with our heads that none of that is true, but we live our lives as if it is. But what the Bible tells us is that salvation is not something we can earn. The Bible says salvation is by grace, which is a gift. It is not a work. It is not something we can earn. We cannot, by our obedience, earn our salvation or by our disobedience, cancel our salvation. Our obedience doesn't earn our salvation. And our obedience doesn't prove our value. And you see, this is a trap that many of us get caught in because after being saved, we think, well, I was saved by grace, but now I need to prove to God that he got a good bargain in me. I'm a good investment of his Jesus dollars. And so I will now obey him in order to prove to God that it was a good idea to save me, and I will prove to God that he should not take my salvation away. And so we obey him, seeking to prove our value. But here's the truth of the matter. 
After being saved, our obedience doesn't prove our value. It just demonstrates God's goodness. Because after we are saved, God places the Holy Spirit inside of us, and the Holy Spirit begins to heal our broken hearts. And because God the Holy Spirit is healing our hearts, we find ourselves wanting to obey God and able to obey God. And so our obedience doesn't prove our value. It just demonstrates God's goodness. And so if our salvation doesn't force God to do anything, doesn't, if our obedience doesn't earn our salvation, if our obedience doesn't prove our value, then what does it do? Our obedience, it turns out, brings us opportunities. You see, to obey God is to do what he says and what he wants. And our obedience, it turns out, brings us opportunities. Because when we obey, we're doing what is good. And we're doing, it turns out, what works. When we disobey God, everything that we do to disobey him does not work. Life in disobedience doesn't work. Life in disobedience is like driving a car around and never changing the oil. The car is going to break eventually. But obedience gives us the opportunity to live a life that works. And obedience means making and multiplying disciples of Jesus. And so when we disobey, we miss out on the opportunity to make and multiply disciples. We do not make and multiply disciples. But when we obey, we have the opportunity to impact the world for Christ. Our obedience doesn't force God to do anything. It doesn't earn our salvation. It doesn't prove our value, but it brings us opportunities. And our obedience brings God great glory. You see, when we obey God, it's a way of expressing our love to God. And when we obey God, it is a way of praising him with our very lives. God is due our love. We owe God our obedience because Jesus is Savior and Lord. He's priest and king. So let's obey God. That's what Zechariah the prophet is telling us. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.